The earth is beautiful and bright and kindly, but that is not all. The earth is also terrible and dark and cruel. The rabbit shrieks dying in the green meadows. The mountains clench their hands full of hidden fire. There are sharks in the sea, and there is cruelty in men's eyes. And where men worship these things and abase themselves before them, their evil breeds. Their places are made in the world where darkness gathers. Places given over wholly to the ones whom we call nameless. The ancient and holy powers of the earth before the light. The powers of the dark, of ruin, of madness. I think they drove your priestess Kossel mad a long time ago. I think she has prowled these caverns as she prowls the labyrinth of her own self, and now she cannot see the daylight anymore. She tells you that the nameless ones are dead. Only a lost soul, lost to truth, could believe that. They exist, but they are not your masters. They never were. You are free, Tanar. You were taught to be a slave, but you have broken free. What's up, y'all? It's Girls Talk Comics. Well, I guess Girls Talk Book Club, right? Right. We're doing book club. I love it. I love it. Anyway, it's Erin. I was totally going to put like a witty name instead of Master of Mediocrity, but... It's your identity now. It's your mom friend, (laughs) Erin. And I'm Jessica, the Lieutenant of Literature. And as you might have guessed from our intro, I'm here to drag the Master of Mediocrity through a cringy, soul-bearing episode of Book Club. I first read today's book, Tombs of Atuan, which is a Wizard of Earthsea novel, even though it's very short. It's the second book in the first trilogy... But it reads sort of like a standalone novel, so hopefully you guys were able to follow it. But I first read it when I was in junior high in my school library. I found it like a lost treasure in a tomb. And it was this hardback book in an older style. And it didn't have any cover on it. Like there was no book cover on it. So it was just a dark blue, blackish kind of canvassy cover with this just embossed Tombs of Atuan on it, and it felt very much like somebody had accidentally left it there. <laughs> so I found it, and I read it, and I opened it up, and it was about this girl named Tanar, who was taken to be a priestess to the Nameless Ones in a sort of side country of the land of Ursi. And, yeah, there's a whole hijinks that happens in the middle of it, which we can talk about a little bit further in. But the entire POV is from Tinar. And the protagonist from the first book does make an appearance in the second half of the book. Uh, But it's sort of an interesting piece of literature, I think. And I'm very excited to hear what Aaron has to say about it. Have you ever read this book or even, like, heard of it before I kind of forced you to do this, Erin? I had not. I did read the first book in the Earthsea series, and I enjoyed the first book, but I never really looked further. I think growing up, Ursula was not on the list of fantasy authors that my family read, and I picked up a lot of things from my parents more so than independently. So her stuff never really crossed my path. So I'm very, very glad that 
you asked me to read it really grew my world. What did you think about it? Well, I liked it. I thought the afterword from Ursula really added some context to it. And I think in 2020, I would have wanted a different ending than what she wrote in 1969, I believe was when this was originally published or written. Um, But I still enjoyed it. Um, It was good. Why do you think I liked it as a small child? (laughs) Uh, Tanar is young in the series. I think she's 16. Um, Or at least they really do present her as very much a maiden and juvenile. And it, it was a story of a young woman kind of rebelling against a system that she didn't really want to participate in and kind of finding her own expression and coming into her own. So I think that's why you liked it. It also had, you know, all the fun fantasy stuff, but I do think you liked it because there was a woman who was stepping out on her own and kind of fighting against women participating in a toxic patriarchy that was bringing her down. Or, yeah. am I wrong? No, no. I'd say you're probably right. I will say that I... The first the entire first half of the book is sort of watching her grow up, you know, from when she was very small in the foreword to like when she was taken to the temple and had her name eaten from her. She is a pretty nasty little girl, and I don't think that I don't think you really get to read a lot about nasty little girls. You you get to read a lot about nasty little boys in some of the traditional fantasy novels, right? You you have like Mm-hmm. Um, one of the children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a nasty little boy, and he's sort of never really, I don't know, he's hes sort of a villain, but he's just, you know, kind of written off as one of those boys will be boys sort of situations, like, what can you do? Sometimes boys are just nasty. And this was the first ever, like, ah, sometimes girls are just nasty. And, and like she talks about in the afterwards, she's sort of given this power over her own domain is a very empty sort of power. It's one that she doesn't really have the capacity to enforce, you know, so it's sort of power and name only in some aspects. And she's given sort of these deep secret places that she sort of basks in that privacy. And, you know, just the whole atmosphere of the first half of the book is very enthralling in that way. Like, it's still to this day. Mm-hmm. Like just watching her sort of grow up, trying to sort of sort of come to grasp, come to terms with her identity. I mean, really, her identity is being stripped from her actively through that whole first half of the novel, through indoctrination and just various aspects, like slowly drawing her away from her childhood friends. You know, as much as she's able to make friends when being sort of held aloft as this never-ending, never-dying priestess. Um, Yeah, and that identity part is something I want to talk about when you get to that question, because there's a lot with that that I thought was really put into context. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Cool. So reading the the notes from Ursula that that she had in regards to this book – um, for her writing it, the darkness that Tanar had control over was um, supposed to represent femininity. 
And I thought that that put a really interesting perspective. And certainly with Tanar kind of wrestling with this domain that she was given power of a name only, she had this outside, this god king that came into this domain and the god king decided that the nameless ones were to be respected but were also less than his authority. So she had these older women some of whom were also outsiders of other, meaning that they were practitioners of other religions, um, or at least worshipped other gods in their, uh, what's the word? Their polytheism. We'll just go with that. Pantheon. That's the word. (laughs) They, but they were still less than the priestess who worshipped the God King or represented the God King. And I like that, structured the book and we're this is going to start getting into why i wish the ending was different but i won't spoil that right of way um but it it really felt like this patriarchy was controlling what this representation of femininity was supposed to be and the patriarchy was being reinforced by another woman um which is totally something that happens we can't deny that and that's why internalized misogyny is is a thing we should talk about but i i thought that was really interesting that her domain was womanhood yet she couldn't enforce it or control it without the priestess who worshiped the god king and the god king being a man (laughs) representative of a imperialist culture so it was just really (laughs) yeah it was it was just a really interesting thing and i thought it was really interesting where the other women whenever they interacted with tanar and the name the nameless ones they were also nervous and reverent and scared of what that could be so it just it it was just a creative cool tone to the book yeah and you know like in some ways i like that parallel you know and i and i hope that she doesn't Mm -hmm. keep that all the way into the second half of the book because there are a couple of things that are cringeworthy whenever you think about in that aspect like the fact that that under tomb which is supposed to be the sacred aspect of her nameless ones and that you know it took dead the wizard, a man, to bring in light to illuminate the beauty of feminine, like femininity, which is sort of like I think the idea of feminism that she's portraying by these tombs and this underworld mm-hmm. is very much seen through the prism of patriarchy. It's it's the idea of woman as opposite of man, which I found very cringy, and I don't like earlier waves of feminism for a lot of those reasons because they seek to sort of at least from what I can understand of that outside of the cultural context of the age, right? Like, I, I don't know what it was like to be raised mm-hmm. and live in early, like, 1960s, but it seemed very much like they were justifying why their power, which could not be the same as other people's power, was a good power. <laughs> the power that was allowed them, that which was... is the power over each other. And you, yeah. And you kind of see that in the way that the priestess is fighting themselves that was those were the reasons that i had problems yeah and um well like 
the I, I really like this, and, and I found it, so I'm going to read it. But um, in her afterward, toward the end of it, she says, Rereading this book more than 40 years after I wrote it, I wonder about many of its elements. It was the first book I wrote with a woman as a true central character. Tenar's character and the events of the story came from deep within me, so deep that the subterranean and labyrinthine imagery and a certain volcanic quality are hardly to be wondered at. But the darkness, the cruelty, the vengefulness, after all, I could just let them, I could have just let them go free. Why did I destroy the whole place of the tombs with an earthquake? It's a kind of huge suicide, the nameless ones annihilating their temple in a vast spasm of rage. Maybe it was the whole primitive, hateful idea of the feminine as dark, blind, weak, and evil that I saw shaking itself to pieces and imploding, crumbling into records on a desert ground, and I rejoiced to see it fall. I still do. And I think that is sort of, I felt, I felt very good about the way the book ended, but I think I felt good about the way the book ended mm-hmm. because of that. Like, watching the harmful internalization of that defined femininity from outside, those who are inside of it, like, the shaking and crumbling and letting go of that kind of taint, right, is something that I think I have gone through, and a lot of people, I think, have gone through that because it's a different, I mean, like, it, it's starting to slowly be less of an issue as people are slowly opening up to a spectrum gender and non-binary and trans and, you know, like, letting people identify as and and show themselves as them true selves instead of sort of every youth has to force themselves into a small box um, right out the gate. So I see it slowly changing, and probably in a decade they will understand why I'm saying this. But um, for me, when I was growing up in the small town that I was growing up in, it felt very much like everyone went through that phase where they hated the idea of being a girl. And, you know, like, I'm not like other girls is a huge trope, you know, that she wasn't like other girls was like the main dinner of the day for YA novels whenever I was growing up. Um, and I feel like this was sort of like the ancient answer to that, right? Like, <laughs> like she's just like, you know what? Burn it all down and we're going to fall, like fly away with this older man who we're kind of secretly in love with, which is what I, how I read that book whenever I was younger. And then maybe years later, like if we can have something of our own in a different place, you know, but at least she's, she's, burned it all down and ran off to go find her freedom in a new land. And that was sort of what I had thought was a reasonable answer in my junior high, high school, it'll be better in college days, you know? So, like, looking back, I can understand why I didn't respond negatively. For, at first, I didn't draw that huge... The, the book that I had was so old, it didn't have the afterword in it. Um, I read the afterword mm-hmm. since because I reread this book on a regular basis, but um, it didn't have that the labyrinth is, the tombs are the feminine, sort of mm-hmm. objectively stated like that by the author. <laughs> and so I didn't draw that in a direct way, you know? Like, there's the feeling when you're reading it that there that there is some sort of symbolism there. And you, you can kind of intuitively navigate that when you're reading it. But at the time, I wasn't like, oh, gross, you know? Like, why are you writing femininity this way? So... <laughs> So, like, looking back on it, I can't help but kind of carry that forward a little bit. I still like the idea of things being allowed in, and I, you know, 
I like the fact the thing that I was afraid of and the thing that she didn't do was have Ged drop her off on a desert island to, you know, like, like she had asked. So like that was to me, the worst of all worlds would be that that is actually what happened. And thankfully we didn't get that, but we do also see a tonal shift toward the second half of the book where she does sort of lose. She always had a hateful sort of power, right? And you sort of see her lose that when it's sort of revealed that Ged's been the one that's keeping the tomb quiet. And it's sort of revealed that he's the one that's keeping the rocks up. And all of her power and her light that he keeps talking about sort of becomes smaller in in comparison to that. And I think that's too bad. You know, like if there was anything I would change, it would be a little bit of that in the way that was framed. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, and actually in listening to you, I think you and I read and felt similarly about the book. And we certainly had the same kind of childhood experiences growing into our womanhood. Um, I very much was the type of person who existed in this weird periphery. And there were a couple of times in elementary school where some people bullied me and tried to insist that I was really a boy um, because my presentation was so different. I was friends with all the boys. I was such a tomboy. And so I had this kind of revulsion and this um, detachment from my femininity for a very, very, very long time. And also I was like overweight through elementary school and I had just this, all this shame and like middle school and even into high school. And I had a lot of shame um, and it took me a very long time and it took me a lot of hurt and a lot of healing uh, to mostly come to terms with that. Uh, so in reading the book, I was also disappointed that um, the underdark, the femininity was evil. And the reason why is there were, there were a couple scenes up to the end where Tanara uses her knowledge of the underdark, let's say her uh, familiarity with womanhood, to bestow mercy and, uh, for example, following Ged around and directing him to safer places so he could survive. She condemns some slaves to death early in the book, and she's haunted by nightmares. As if, and I read it as if almost the dark was calling out to her to undo that, to let them go, to save them. And so in my reading of it, I viewed it less as the Underdark itself being evil, but the patriarchy or the, the powers that were trying to influence and control her and dictate it were evil. The God King was sending the slaves and the traitors there to be killed, not her followers. She was expected to do it by, from the God King. She was told by the God King's priestess that no men were allowed. You know, her her teachings were contaminated by followers from other gods. And I just read this huge disconnect between Tanar, who rebelled against these people who were telling her to do hurtful things, who were trying who were being hurtful and suspicious of a child of her, who had these expectations for her. I, I saw her rebellion not against the darkness itself because she fled to the darkness to avoid that evil from the people. And the darkness welcomed and kept her safe. So in the second part of the book, whenever the darkness was evil and angry and trying to press and hurt, I kind of was taken a bit for a shock. I would have, reading it in 2021 as an adult, it was just not an ending, 
that I can relate to because I would have, I fall into the personal belief of like, you know, you are a woman, embrace woman as you are. And it's usually like, I am a cis woman. So I identify as the gender I've been assigned, but my expression is not the way I've been asked to express it throughout my life. Yet I still embrace the fact that I'm still a woman. And I would have appreciated at the end, instead of her going into the light, like a child, she was sitting in the dark as the adult that she is embracing the darkness above ground, like sitting at night, you know, maybe looking over this new city and reveling in people who are out celebrating with others like that would have been what I would have wanted instead and the I still would have appreciated the caves being torn down because I think the caves represented an institution that was evil (laughs) and needed to be destroyed Um, but I still would have preferred her instead of going into the light like a child it would have been her sitting at night in the dark as an adult Um, but that yeah I think was where I kind of fall on that well, and there was a scene in the desert when she was staring up at the stars, you know, where I felt that a little bit, like the dark could also be that, you know, wide open and, and full of possibilities in a way that her cavern hadn't been. And if you read it like that, you know, like it feels almost like, I thought about this whenever it, there was a scene when she almost kills Ged before they actually leave the island. Um, and he's like, all right, it's time to go. <laughs> Doesn't even, like, acknowledge the fact that she was about to just, like, do him in. But um, he asks her if she can feel that they're free now, you know, on the water, on the open water, away from the last bit of land that was attached to her past. And she does, and she weeps because it was, like, almost like, and the way that I read it was, it, it was sort of the grief of the feminine, you know, the long-suffering aspects of living in femininity, the part that you carry with you that, you know, like, makes the moon your symbol, but also the night alleyways your enemy, you know? Like, so it was sort of like, Mm -hmm. to me, like, the (laughs) the phallic objects sticking up out of the ground were like the bars that men had put on that aspect of her womanhood, right? And, you know, like, all of this gets to be very hippy-dippy whenever we talk about it out loud like this. Yeah. Uh, and part of it's still cringy about talking about the feminine as, like, a thing because it's so wildly different depending on who you are, and that's part of what I embrace about it now that I'm older. But, like, reading it as an older interpretation of it, it still felt like, still felt like it was the grief of it that she was letting go. And you're right. I think that if it would have gone on a chapter even further, maybe, and skipped the celebration and, you know, like walks into the light and then, you know, does that cinematic thing where sort of the light pinpoints out and then opens up to her mm-hmm. in a starry night sky on the mountain with Ged's old teacher, like in her freedom, I would have liked that finding her freedom instead of the part that she didn't want to be a part of had had asked to skip, you know, this presentation, this quinceanera, this, you know, like this, here she is, behold yeah. how beautiful she is. Like, let's parade her in front of everyone. You know, if we would have seen her like salvation, I think that would have been a very nice 
Yeah. You know, like there's only a couple of notes. There's really like all of it being the same thing. There's only a couple of notes that I think could have gone a little bit farther toward a more, I don't know, satisfying end, you know, like looking at it I, at the least I amount that so I too. can change. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a different ending. You're right. Just a few more pages. <laughs> I think that has to do with 1969 versus 2020. Like that was totally like, yeah, def- here's the 1960s, 1970s, trying to break out of femininity at that time, which is far more rigid than it is now. And 2020, where I can wear pants, you know, <laughs> like, like, you know, I, I can, yeah. I can be overweight. It's still not like as accepted, but just the difference in that era and how women can present and carry themselves at this point, it's a little more rebellious to lean into womanhood and acknowledge its strengths and its weaknesses and express it in a variety of ways. Um, because there's, and it's, it's part of that pendulum swinging. And I think it's fair to say that. And there's still a lot of danger with womanhood and femininity. It's a complicated existence um as many of our sisters know both cis or trans like it's a complicated existence and bringing in non-binary and even masculine presentations it's just very it's rough and it's it is what it is but that wasn't the prevalent conversation in 1969 and uh, you know after reading this book uh Everybody, I would hope everybody after reading a book writes their own little fanfic in their head about the what ifs for what could be next. And I totally imagined her running through the city. I The mountaintop would have been a more natural ending, but I imagined her running through the city and meeting all of the other people who were both safe, who were safer in the darkness, but also not, you know, the other people like her who were women or feminine or regulated to the to the night for their differences and outsideness and creating her community and embracing that kind of world and um i think that's also the power of the retake the night marches um yeah and movements that came actually shortly after this book was released because i i think like the 1970s i think was when a lot of retake the night stuff in the 80s when that really got started so this was like the precipice of it you know so it's just whenever people say politics don't exist in books i just kind of laugh um you know and i know that there are books past the farthest short uh there is a second trilogy in this series and she does mention in her afterward that she is kinder to tinar later in her life when she when she writes the second trilogy for uh, the first sea cycles. Uh, and, you know, I need to read that. I, it's been on my list of things. Um, I actually, with my 2020 goal, which I didn't do any of, um, was to read Ursula Bean's stuff chronologically. Try to read her entire bi- mm. uh, bibliography chronologically. And uh, that's still on my to-do list. Still the next thing I'm going to do, but I think it's a little bit of kindness for myself, like not beating myself up about not doing any of it in 2020. Uh, and I'm doing this book club in 2021, but uh, here's the first one. Here she is. Uh, I know that 
the land of Ursi is very complicated, right? And in some ways, the old ones were always going to be a darkness, a bad, an evil, quote unquote, influence of destruction. But I don't think evil and mm. destruction naturally are the same. Uh, I always, the, the reason the Ursi novel, the, the, the Wizard of Ursi, the first book, has been an important part of my life is because of how um, he overcomes his fears and how he gives them his own name. And it is basically, to me, it was always a, you know, the, the scene where he's he's run back to the shelter of his master and he's sort of hidden himself there as a, his bare hawk form and his master slowly gets him to come back into himself and then, you know, he goes and turns it around on the thing that's been chasing him through the whole world um, of Earthsea and starts chasing the thing back. Uh, that scene where he says, Master, I go hunting. I I really think that that has a lot to say about grief. Uh, it has a lot to say about, you know, like overcoming anxieties and fears and shortcomings in yourself and like opening your eyes and being kind enough to see yourself as you are not as you think you should be. It had a lot it had a lot to say about my self criticism when I was a kid. But uh, you know, looking at it that way, I think I'm forever going to have in my head canon that it wasn't necessarily femininity, but it was sort of the grief of the feminine and so much of it exists in the feminine that that is sort of how it amassed itself, you know, under the bars of the patriarchy of that empire. So that's my headcanon. <laughs> and I I can't really give this one back to the author and say that it was just an NDD, you know, like whole thought. Um, and that's the beauty I think about books is, you know, in a, in, a, in a big way, the whole idea of experiencing art and literature is that you get to sort of draw from it your truths, you know? Oh, You're blowing that's... my mind. You're fucking blowing <laughs> my mind. Which, yeah, I was going to say, which uh, we did have one listener give some feedback. Yeah. Who participated in our book club. Rama, what's up, yeah. buddy? Uh, Yay! So he, I blew his mind because when he f- first gave me the feedback, he was like, yeah, I listened to an audiobook from the 90s. It was okay. Uh, he prefaced it by saying he's not a huge fan of um, high fantasy because uh, it's just too long. But <laughs> he he gave, so at first he was like, it's pretty average. I'd give it like a five out of ten. You know, he enjoyed it more than some things and not less than others. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, this is we're going to talk about kind of femininity. And uh, this is some of the imagery that I noticed. And he was he hit me with this beautiful. Oh, my God. Gift gif afterwards because he was like what the fuck i didn't even think about it that way and so he even put up (laughs) some like imagery analogies that i thought was really cool um so hold on while i get my notes okay so some of the imagery that he pointed out there's the protective father figure and handsome stranger who fight to the death over the uh, dark hole that she's terrified of that one kind of made me giggle (laughs) i was like that's very on the nose imagery (laughs) You know, there's a lot of the language about the inner sanctum being defiled 
by a man's presence, which has to do with a lot of purity. And I kind of picked up on that with the presence of the eunuchs. That's a huge purity Mm -hmm. thing. Um, Yeah. So that one, I was kind of like, damn, he he got it as soon as I put that context. Uh, And the other thing he pointed out was the the rings are two halves joined together. So it's two halves, like man and woman coming together to form a whole. Which is a bit heteronormative, yep. but even something that she referred to in her afterword where she talked about how the purpose of this book or one of the things that she wanted to talk about in this book is men and women coming together to move on or to like succeed and excel. They have to do it together, which, again, I think reflects more on older waves of feminism than modern yeah. ideas. Older gender. And still is pretty – yeah, still – pretty kind of heteronormative which i it's not a bad thought because i do think that men and other people who uphold including the women who uphold the patriarchy need are gonna have to be involved with tearing it down um and and ged also represents a lot of otherness he represents other religions he represents another race uh in all of the conflict of that so at that Whenever Ursula mentioned that being a part of her narrative, I thought it was kind of cool reading it as like, the others have to tear down this representation of evil. Um, so that was kind of a cool mm-hmm. spin to put on it as well. But so that those were Rama's notes. Thank you for reading along, Rama. I appreciate you, Rama. your input. And I'm so glad I got to blow your mind with additional insight. <laughs> so, yeah. Shorty, you the best. I, I mean, <laughs> It's interesting to hear guys like feedback on some stuff that feels so important from a younger female perspective because I, you know, like I, I wouldn't have offered this to a dude friend of mine and go, hey, you need to read this book. It's amazing. But I would selfishly like deprive them all of it, you know, like and just blast all of my, you know, lady type friends like you have to read this book without ever like, a, like without ever like in my forebrain thinking this is about femininity you know it's it's an interesting kind yeah. of kind of breakthrough like i don't know like how often do i not recommend female driven narratives to, to men you know what i mean like how often do mm-hmm. i do this just sort of self-centering interesting and i'm glad that this time i didn't get to- oh i do that too though yeah i do that a lot in the comic shop um like i won't recommend male focused stories to women or women focused stories to men. And that was a thing that I noticed and I had a problem with it because one, the number of female led stories is very, very small. So I was running out of things to recommend to people. <laughs> like, And, you know, they wanted niche stories and I was like, well, I don't have any of that for women. And then I was like, it doesn't fucking matter. It's comic books. Who gives a shit? And so, you know, that was kind of, I was like, I don't want people to do that to me. Why am I doing that to them? Um, but then also for men, I would read all these great stories that had women characters or were read by women or were maybe for a younger audience. And I was like, I can't give it to you. You read X-Men. <laughs> you read Batman. <laughs> Why would I give this to you when you're reading Vampirella? You know, it was just like, or the zombie tramp or whatever it was. And I'm like, I don't want you to read Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. Like, it's super cute and emotional and I think a great story and it's got fun stuff to it but no you're reading women who are nude like that's not your thing it's just and 
you know, it kind of feeds into that like defiling thing. And it's just, and, but that exactly. is a bias that I have thinking. that I also don't think it's fair to them. It is just like, <laughs> no, men need to read mooncakes. Yes, they do. I tried to read boys. Also- you can read mooncakes. <laughs> like- <laughs> No, really, though, for real. It's like, no, I don't want you to read this because you're going to think it's juvenile. And I think you're bullshit. And then I'm like, oh, wait, that's not fair because I haven't given yes. him the chance to actually. But, yeah. No, it's also, definitely yes, a thing. It's not like, fair. <laughs> <laughs> you totally, I understand. I understand. And I'm happy. Like, yeah. And every single book in the book club is going to be a female narrative because that is the whole theme. So welcome to the club. Yeah. I hope you stay. Uh, <laughs> please stay this will also be I fun for that- us to challenge our biases we are growing yeah. as readers and podcasters and it's going to be great and we're all going to learn and come together maybe I will break through my internalized genderisms <laughs> and just read shit for the sake of good stories a lot of these are at more adolescent books too so like I mean I'd say a good half of them are partly because they're the books that I've had the longest to, to stew over without talking to anyone about them. <laughs> and partly because... That's fair. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, and they're shorter, yeah. so it's a little bit less daunting to have, you know, a lot of shorter ones in a monthly book club. Um, there's a lot going on, and it's hard to focus these days sometimes with all of the excessive anxieties and pressures and... Cool We're still recording remote, but I am totally disassociating right now. <laughs> like, it's just like, <laughs> can't focus. <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, uh, mm. I'm really happy that we had this conversation. I really, this is what I've Me needed. Too. I've needed this in a non-judgy way. Because yeah, I mean, it is, is a younger book, you know, and it's fair to say that it's not her most, uh, it's not her most uh, progressive literary yeah, it's not her most progressive. It's not her most, like, upper purple literary, like, high literature type thing. And, you know, like, in a lot of ways, I feel like this is a low fantasy because it is in a smaller setting. Uh, you know, it's a low fantasy set in a high mm-hmm. fantasy uh, series. So um, I always think that those, from a literary perspective, are interesting. I have a different novel coming up on the list that is sort of similar in that the first novel is a low fantasy and then it breaks open into a high fantasy. Um, and I just like it. I like tone shifts. I like opening up to a new novel and going, oh shit, this is all different. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> well, you know, like if you have an adolescent coming of age story and then the next book is more of the same, then how could you have come of age? Ooh, that's fair. Yeah. That's yeah. a fair point. <laughs> So what is her next book? Do you know? Um, oh, oh no, I'm not prepared. The Godstopper Chronicles, which is the one I was just referencing, so that's exciting. Um, it's hey. a dual. Actually, in its own right, it's a combined novel. It is the first the first novel uh, in it is a low fantasy, and then the second half is going to be a high fantasy setting. So that's really exciting. It's by author P.C. Hodgel, okay. and um, I'm very excited. I am too. Also, you totally got me into reading more prose, so. Yay! Yay. I think it's just a nice palette cleanser with all of the comments of devouring the creepy woman on the Twitters. 
Yes. <laughs> I've been doing so uh, much. Speaking of that, follow us on Twitter for more comic news and reviews, as well as random drug tweets from your master of mediocrity, Erin. Uh, if you like Thank what you. we do, please like, subscribe, or leave a five-star review if that's something that you can do where you listen. And maybe consider buying us a comment on our Kofi page. Um, we do post these on Facebook, so if you have something to say about today's book, please join our Facebook discussion. Um, or you can do it in 240 characters or less on Twitter, because I'm sure that will also be an option. <laughs> Definitely. I'm so excited. Thank you all for listening. If you have any suggestions? Oh, goodness, I already said that. I don't know what to do now. How do you end this? <laughs> Usually just by rambling. And then I go, well, well I've said the- enough. And then just close. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening. I've said enough. You've heard enough. Let's move on. <laughs> ah, okay, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank thanks, you. everybody. Bye. Bye. I loved that. Okay. 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 All right. So, I'll just do a greeting. Any greeting. (laughs) Everything's tangled. Close enough.